a listener production. G'day, you are listening to episode 110 of the Howie Games, part B, featuring five-time winner on the US PGA Tour, Mark Leishman. On we go. Talking about pressure, mate, and and this also really interests me, and we'll frame it around um, the British Open 2015 at St Andrews where you went into a a playoff without going through the mechanics of every shot. 31-year-old Australian, he began the day three shots off the lead, tied sixth. Here at the 12th, the par four. It's a good one, second shot, Brandon. Well, it is a good one and very difficult to figure out how to play. And, well, Mark Leishman took a driver off of the tee. Having turned in 31, a very aggressive play. Here's how the leaderboard looked at the end of 72 holes. Johnson, Oosthuizen, Mark Leishman at 15 under par. Zach Johnson, 66, so too. Uh, Leishman at that number. Once you get to those tremendously big tournaments, you're playing in a, in a major, which is obviously what you're trying to, to achieve. How do you control emotion? How do you deal with pressure as a golfer on the big stage? Um. For me, I mean, I don't think you can be scared of it or you shouldn't be scared of it because if you're feeling pressure because you're in contention at the end of a tournament, you're doing something right. You're obviously playing good golf. Um, Breathing is very important for me. I've got to make sure I'm breathing properly. Um, What does that mean? Because when you're under pressure, you you breathe very shallow. So you've got to make sure you have to breathe. You have to breathe in through your nose, because when you do that, it activates these things just above your lungs. So basically it basically tells your lungs that there's oxygen coming in to process it. Um, so in through your nose, deep into your stomach, and then slowly out through your mouth. Um, so I learned all that when, when Audrey was sick. And it's funny you mentioned the 15 British Open because um, that was very soon after she was sick. And I've pretty much felt nothing that entire week um, just because it was so... I'd just gone through a life and death situation with her and then all of a sudden I'm leading the biggest tournament in the world and it was, I didn't really care if I won or not. Obviously I wanted to win, but it was like, well, I'm going to do everything I can to win this tournament, but at the end of the day, if I don't win, I can still go home and see my wife and kids and, you know, is it that bad sort of thing. Hmm. So I, I looking back on it, I wish I had maybe I wish I had that opportunity again um, but it was just so new after that that I, I I don't know my my emotions and my I don't know my feelings and I, I was just very numb it was just I didn't really wasn't feeling anything so which was maybe a good thing it made me made me play, maybe made me play better um, but I would love to be in that thrown in that situation again now I think I would do a lot better. In a playoff with Johnson and was it Louis Oosthuizen? Yeah. And your first playoff hole, you just bang it down the middle and the ball lands in a divot. <laughs> like that is stiff leash. You walk up there and you think, well, I've done the right thing here and the ball's in a divot. How, how, like that sucks. Yeah, it was uh, It was exactly the same yardage as I had in the morning or the, that, you know, on the first hole in the, in the last round and I birdied it. And then you get down there. And you're, I was in a divot, a tiny little divot. Like it was, it was like a egg cup. It was, it was terrible, and it was a front pin too, with water short. So I had no chance. Um, yeah, so that was that was pretty frustrating. Um, but I mean, you know, 
what can you do? It's yeah, wasn't my time, unfortunately. Uh, what a great moment for the Johnson family. So four holes and one under par for Zach Johnson, Louis at even, Mark Leishman, two over par. But um, I would, yeah, I would like to have had that shot from a decent lie. I think it would have been a very different outcome. So do you dwell on it when you've been in contention for, for a Masters and then you leave Augusta? Does it sit with you or you're right, right next tournament, on we go? Um, I mean, the, the Open in 15, that sat with me for probably a week. Normally you give me 15 minutes after the tournament and I'm good. Um, that was probably a week. Um, just, you know, so close to being major champion, you know, a tournament that I've wanted to win my whole career at St Andrews. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I dwelled on that one a little bit, but most of the time I'm, I get over it pretty quickly. I always say to Audrey, I'm like, if I have a bad day, give me 10 minutes, I'll be fine. Um, it's a great there attitude. Was, uh, yeah, there was one, I can't remember which tournament it was. Um, I said to her, maybe give me an hour for this one. I can't remember what <laughs> tournament it was. Yeah, maybe Bay Hill, but yeah. I can't remember. Take me behind the scenes of being a player at Augusta and the Masters. Is it everything it looks on TV? Then there's the triumvirate from Australia, all of whom would be a national hero with a win. Adam Scott, the little-known Mark Leishman, and a very determined Jason Day trying to bring their country a first green jacket. Yeah. Yeah, it's good. Um, just the energy is amazing there. Um I mean, it's basically, you know, kids have Disneyland, golfers have Augusta. Um, <laughs> it's just every, everyone's happy who's there. You know, it's it's a lifetime dream to go there. As a player, it's a lifetime dream to go there. Um, so, you know, you drive down Magnolia Lane every morning. Um, yeah, the the driving range is perfect. The the course is perfect. I mean, you get looked after. The food's amazing in there. Um, just every, you know, the course is in per, like great. Yeah, everything's good about it. It's there's nothing um, nothing bad. You know, the world's media is there, so there's a lot of attention. Um, and that yeah, that's that's cool as well. Having to manage your time, you got to manage your time very well that week as a player. Uh, that's probably think that's a main reason why someone in there you know, not many first time players at the masters uh, win that because you're taking it all in and and you forget that you have to actually save energy for the tournament uh-huh. um so yeah it's it's a good spot food's pretty good is it food's good it's not good for you but it's good so <laughs> um yeah all the what the pimento cheese sandwiches and the <laughs> Oh, there's, there's all sorts of stuff they have in there, so it's uh, yeah, it's good. You famously, oh, I think, at 2013 when Scotty wins the Masters, you're in contention, and then um, it slips away from you late. Mark Leishman shot farther back at six under from 231 yards. It's a five iron. Go, go, Did he get it all? Didn't. There's the famous shot, the famous photo when when Adam holds a 
crucial putt and you're in the background pumping your fist and it was like you were playing together in the President's Cup. I'm sure you've been told this a thousand times, but that endeared you to the Australian public like few sporting photos, I think, mate, because your dream had faded away, but you were that pumped for your countrymen. It's really, really cool. There you see Scott celebrating that putt in the foreground. But look in the background. There is Mark Leishman with a fist pump for his friend and fellow Aussie because he knew the importance of that putt as an Australian was trying to win the Masters. Yeah, it was, I mean, it was like an involuntary fist pump. <laughs> it was, um, <laughs> I think it, everyone in Australia was doing exactly the same thing. Um, you know, we, as Australians... Prior to 2013, we got a lot of questions of why haven't you won? Uh, why hasn't an Australian won the Masters? And to be honest, it, 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 it was only my second Masters, but I was almost sick of it already. And the guys who, you know, like Scotty had played, I don't know how many, 10 or 12 Masters before that. Um, it was just the anticipation. And then there was three Aussies up there and I'd slipped away, but... I was there for my mate when he when he did that, and that was that was pretty special. This right here could be the biggest moment of his career. Adam Scott, yes, unreal. I still remember after after that went over and gave him a big high five, and he yeah, his adrenaline's pumping obviously, and it was a it was a proper high five. I still had a four footer for, to finish, I think fourth. That's one of those parts we were talking about that's worth a pretty decent amount of money. And I couldn't feel my right hand. It was the color of a tomato and I couldn't feel it. And I'm like, Oh no, this is, I'm going <laughs> to look so stupid if this misses. Um, cause no one's going to know that I can't feel my right hand. Um, but it was cause it had been like a drizzly rain all day and it was cold. Yes. And, um, yeah, but it, it was, that was a cool moment. You mentioned earlier on in this um, about your beautiful wife, Audrey. Um, what happened, mate, if you don't mind me asking? What happened to Audrey? Yeah, so she had a, um, a birth control, an IUD removed, um, and then had a, had a period, put a tampon in um, and got toxic shock syndrome, which turned into sepsis which is a blood poisoning um so is toxic shock but uh sepsis actually kills i'm not sure how many australians but it kills 270,000 americans a year um and then that turned into acute respiratory distress syndrome which is what we're talking about before about the um what the covid patients are getting um so basically your, your lungs completely fill with fluid which is like a mucousy sort of fluid that you can't drain. So you're basically suffocating from the inside out. Um, Gosh. So she got that. Uh, we got told she was going to die and um, basically was a, you know, Hail Mary. Um, they flipped her onto her stomach for a couple of days to try and drain the fluid um, with a breathing machine. She had a breathing machine because um, she was in a coma which was breathing in for seven seconds and out for one. So when you try and do that for three breaths and you can't do it, uh, she was doing that for a, a whole day um, and then that somehow worked and, um, you know, she's still here today. So it's actually our 10th wedding anniversary, um, well, today in Australia. So Oh, congratulations. Uh, yeah, so that's um, 
it's all a pretty big milestone thinking because we, we, we weren't meant to get to five. So yeah. do you mind exploring that conversation a little bit with me? Yeah. So she, she gets she gets really sick. Um, you mentioned there that you, you were told she wasn't going to make it. Like, where does that conversation come from? Is that with you and Audrey? Without, well, yeah. Like, how does it happen, mate? I can't imagine. So, yeah. So what what happens is you go into a conference room with the doctors, um, and they basically sit you down and tell you what's going on. Um, she was, it was weird. She was in a coma, but she was still, she had the tube down her throat, but she was still conscious and she could text to communicate. So she's looks like she's okay, but so we get that news and then have to go back in there and she's like, you know, on the phone, am I going to be okay? And I've had to just blatantly lie to her. It's like, yeah, you're going to be all right, but you're going to have to fight, like, you're really sick, but you're going to have to fight. And so before she got put into the coma, she couldn't actually say goodbye to the boys, um, to, to our kids. And I think that's what she had that determination to try and speak to them again. Um, so it was, uh, yeah, it was pretty, pretty ordinary times. Um, yeah, I remember being at the hospital pretty much nonstop. I didn't sleep for seven days. I didn't eat. I couldn't eat. Um, you know, I tried to eat a, toasted cheese sandwich one day I took up one bite and couldn't even get it down um there's you know corner of a hospital ward she was her room was in a good spot it was right at the end I'd just go around the corner and cry it was it was pretty bad yeah so uh, but then you got to go home and still be strong for your kids so so how did um, you do that how did you deal with your young blokes at this stage yeah so they so they're really young they're three and one um so my oldest boy he's he he's only I think he had PTSD. He was bad for a while, um, just not behavioural wise, but just um, scarred, I guess you'd say. And my little fella, he can't remember it, so that's a, that's a good thing. But yeah, he's got to go back and still give them the love that that they need and deserve, and um, yeah, try and try and uh, try and cope. I remember backing into a car spot, a parking spot in in the in the hospital. And this must have been towards the end of my sleep deprivation because I was reversing into this park. And I remember looking, there, there was a pole and I'm like, geez, the rear vision mirror is going to hit that pole. And then the rear vision mirror smashed off. And I'm like, oh, it just hit the pole, reverse parked and just went into the hospital. I didn't even care. It was like, couldn't, couldn't, didn't have time to react. And I, I would have had 10 seconds to react, but I was, I shouldn't have been driving. Um, but just, you know, you have to go to and from the hospital and just, yeah, stuff like that. Just, um, you know, I, I remember seeing her doctor sleeping, standing up. It was, he was, he was like a saint. It was, it was crazy how good he was. Uh, he was there the whole time and just, yeah, it was massively on our team. Really personal question now, really personal question for two blokes that don't know each other very well. Do you say anything to your wife? You've obviously told Audrey that, you know, you'll be right, but you've got to like, do you have any conversations obviously apart from telling you you love her dearly um yeah I mean you can't really I mean she was in and out of consciousness but um yeah you just see if she wants if she's itchy anywhere or you know because yeah it was 
it was very weird time, but um, I actually didn't tell. I forgot about that story that um, about the meeting and having to tell her until about a year ago. Uh, so I, I remember telling her about a year ago. Um, yeah, I mean, I've still got actually the voice memos that we're doing this on. I, um, I've got, I've recorded the meeting with the doctor, and that's how. Like, I've still got that on the oh, recorded on it. Yeah, so it's. Uh, I think I've listened to it once in five years, but it's um, yeah makes you again. If you ever lose perspective, you can go back to that, listen to that, and it's like it snaps you back into reality pretty quickly. That's the next question, mate. What has someone learned from an experience like that? Oh, I mean, just you know, you can be taken away from you in the blink of an eye, um, and just it really. I mean, it's, you hear people say it a lot, but just enjoy every day because you don't know when someone or you know yourself is going to get taken away um so you just got to enjoy everything enjoy your kids uh your family friends um and just yeah live life like it's i don't know just live it till it's fullest i guess um yeah it's uh like i say it just makes you realize how lucky you are really it's um something like that you know you, you don't wish it upon anyone but it does uh I, I felt like I always had pretty good perspective but that uh that definitely puts things massively into perspective so if you have the conversation where it doesn't look like your wife's going to survive what's the conversation like when the doctor says you know what we're starting to come out of the woods here yeah There's- i mean you it's you feel like you're <laughs> A truck's been lifted off your shoulders because yeah. um, you know you, you see you see the monitor um, and you see, I mean her blood pressure was ninety over thirty for a lot of it, which is terrible. It's meant to be one twenty over sixty or sixty over one twenty, whatever it is. Um, and then you see that slowly going up, and you see her oxygen levels coming down. So her her um, she was on a hundred percent oxygen for a whole day. We breathe, I think we breathe about 22% oxygen. She was on 100. Anything over 40 or so, it's so long ago now I've forgotten, but anything over, I think it's 40 or 60% oxygen, like just out of the canister, is toxic. Um, so if she was on 100% oxygen much longer, it would have fried something, you know. Um, but then when she comes out of it, it's like you can see her vitals getting better and you can see the, the doctor's there less and... Um, but she had a lot of stuff going on. There was a lot of things that had to happen, but um, yeah, it was it was a pretty good feeling. You said your doctor was asleep, standing up. How do you say thank you to someone like that, Mark? Oh, that guy. I mean, I'd do anything for him. Seriously, um, it was it was Masters Week when it all happened, and um. I'm like, you got to come to the Masters next year. And he's so busy. Uh, he, he'll probably never do it. But, um, yeah, I mean, we take him out for dinner. Um, we try and catch up, you know, once every – or a couple of times a year. Uh, you can't thank someone like that. I mean, if – yeah, I don't know. I don't, I don't know how you do, to be honest. I'm still trying to work, out, work that out, how to thank him properly. But I guess just a, a friendship – is probably the best thing that can come out of it. You know, that's probably the best way to thank him is just be friends and um, if he ever needs anything, be there for him, really. 
More of Mark shortly. Please, please check out our entire back catalogue, which now has 109 episodes. There will be some you're sure to have missed, like possibly episode 14 with the great white shark himself, Greg Norman. When you get home that night, do you have a beer and say, oh, well, do you wrap a golf club around a tree? Do you have tears in your eyes? What's your emotion, mate? Oh, look, I'll be I'll tell you the truth. I mean, there's times when I've gone down to my beach and sat down there and just taken taken a couple of beers on my own and just got away from people. Uh, most of the time, not most of the time, I would say I'm very good with my friends and family, where I don't want to show my hurt to them because, it, to me, it's it's as I, I keep repeating it, it's just a game, mm. um, and it's important for them to realize that okay, I've taken it on the chin, I've accepted it, you know, let's move on. But at the same time, I think it's also important for you, the individual like me, uh, to express to myself the, the, the hurt. Um, and that's why I do it on my own. I just took a couple of beers, went down the beach, sat down and, and shed a tear. That's Greg Norman on episode 14 of the podcast. All right, let's get back to leash. Let's move on to more lighthearted things. Let's talk about a couple of your... One publicised, one not so publicised obsessions. Um, the PGA did one of the great videos of all time uh, in recent times, showing what I could only describe it as obsession with you and your lawn. For those that haven't seen it, we get home from a trip, and he will kick off his shoes and be in the backyard mowing the lawn barefoot within ten minutes of us being home. I like the short lawns. That's how they are back home in Australia. I like them firm, and then, you know, you can get the stripes on them and all that. I kind of became obsessed with how I could get stripes on it and just make it look like a green, even though I didn't play like one. It's kind of become an obsession, I guess. Um, you're, you're a man obsessed with grass, to the point where I've been told you've actually been to the MCG and had a chat with the curators there and maybe got to even jump on some equipment there. You're obsessed with it, mate. What, what, what is it? Tell me about it. Yeah, I got to jump on uh, one of the... Got to cut the cut the G uh, last. I think it was December, early December. Um, That's cool. The morning of the, I think it was the last day of the Shield game between yep. Victoria and New South Wales. Um, yeah, I don't know. I just, I've always, you know, I used to cut my nana's grass and I cut mum and dad's grass, and mow a cricket pitch and all that. And then, obviously, being a golfer, you're on grass all the time. Um, and then you get your own house, and it's like, well, you know. Let's give this a shot, and then you get obsessed with it. Um, I'm probably I'm not as obsessed as what that video makes me out to be, <laughs> but um, yeah, I do love it, and uh, yeah, it's good exercise. It's um, I love being outside. It just and then it looks good after it. So how many mowers you got? I've got three. <laughs> so I've got that I've got a ride obsessed. on. Yeah. Yeah. So I've got a ride on and then two greens mowers. So I've got, they're at two different heights. So, uh, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm lucky. John Deere actually hooked me up with a, a couple of mowers for that, for that piece. And then, um, yeah, it's, it's fun. Have you got to the point where you've burnt your grass off to produce a better, uh, surface for want of a better term? Yeah. So, um, it goes completely dormant in the winter. Yeah. Um, so I actually didn't burn. I, 
I, I don't burn the front yard because I feel like that's, you know, they'll, my neighbours will properly think I'm <laughs> crazy. Um, but I, I bagged up, I cut it and bagged all the grass up and it was 100 garbage bags full of grass for the front yard. <laughs> so I burnt the backyard and it's a slow controlled burn. It's not like an out of control you know, bushfire. What do you pour petrol on it or what do you do? No, you just light it and it just... Okay. Because it's, it's so dry and dead. So you've got to wait till night time so there's a bit of dew on it so it doesn't get out of, the, out of control. <laughs> so I did it to the backyard and then there was no grass taken away. So it saved me so much, you know, so much time and um, labour, I guess. So, yeah, and then it, it grows quicker too. So yeah, it's like burning off, I suppose. You know, you get all that new growth and just gets rid of all the, all the dead stuff, so... This this it's does sound like an obsession. Uh, yeah. The other thing, um, <laughs> I think it's it's well known that you you like a beer. Um, tell me about Leishman Lager with with one of the great taglines that I saw when I was looking at it. That's now available in Victoria. Time for a leash. I like yeah. that. I yes. like that. So it's um, yeah, we started Leishman Lager uh, in Australia December last year. So. Um, yeah, it's in Victoria, uh, and you can order it online too now, uh, Australia wide. So okay, so um, I just Google Leishman Lager, and I can order some, can I? Yeah, Leishman Lager Australia, um, well, LeishmanLager.com.au. Okay, uh, go on there, and they can deliver it to your door. Um, so did you start brewing like a homebrew operation, or what happened? No. So what what it was, it started in America, and um, there's a brewery here in Virginia Beach that. Um, has a charitable side and they they wanted to do a beer for us for a month, just a month, and we get the proceeds for our f- foundation. So I'm like, that sounds awesome. But can we do it this with this and with this? And Because like, I wanted it to taste like an Australian beer because you can't yep. get Australian beer over here. They're like, yeah, I suppose we can get that. So we got the hops from Melbourne, the Pride of Ringwood hops, and um, I'm like, yeah, we need a bit more head retention with just the froth as you go down the, down the thing. And we got it really good and and that was for four years ago, so it's been four years since we've since we had that first batch over here, and it's um it's now in Florida, it's in Virginia, um, <laughs> so we're working to get it through America, and then the one in Australia is a mid strength, so um, yeah, that's that's very new, but it's it's going really well. The both great beers, um, yeah, so in, enjoying that side of it too. So it's nice to have some interest outside of golf and, um, you know, just for, I know golf's not going to be around forever. Uh, so hopefully I can get these going and, um, it would be hard to do it if it wasn't a good beer, but it's, it's nice that it's turned out really good. And, um, yeah, hopefully it'll, it'll grow and we can do something good with it. I'm going to order some straight after this. I'm going to order some and it might get me through isolation. Um, Beautiful. Um, I need to let you go soon. You've been very generous with your time. Uh, if there's no Leishman Lager available and you've got one beer for a man that's travelled the world, one beer, what are you drinking? Probably I'd go Carlton Dry. Carlton Dry. Yeah. Carlton Dry or Carlton Draft. I mean, depends how many I'm going to have. But <laughs> Probably, I find that uh, if you have too many Colton drafts, it's it's a pretty rough next day. <laughs> so, Colton dry, uh, Colton dry is my go-to. Hey mate, chatting with you, and I 
Speaking to a mutual friend of ours, Mark Hayes, who does a great job with media here in Australia, and he said, oh, mate, when you speak to him, you'll find he is just so unaffected by everything that's come his way. You know, million-dollar golf tournaments and cars picking you up and the right end of the plane and everything on tap and being looked after. Have you made an effort to be the same bloke that you were when you left Warner Bull as an 18-year-old or is that just naturally you? Because people in the situation that you find yourself in can sometimes become very different to the people they used to be. Yeah, I I, I haven't made an effort. Um, I just find it really hard to, to be the way that some people turn out. I, I find it really easy to be nice. I think it's takes up so much less energy to be be nice and a good person. I feel like I find it so difficult and it burns so much energy to be to be I don't know what you want to call it mean or uh, arrogant. I hate arrogance. That's my biggest pet peeve is people who who are arrogant. Um, and I yeah, I just I don't know, maybe that's part of it, but um, I don't know. I just find I just like making people smile and it's so easy when you're a, you know, you're, you're a role model to make someone's day and I love doing that. Like when you see the smile you can put on or kids' faces for one, but grown men or, or, or ladies' faces just from a picture or a signature or a photo, it's, um, it just makes you feel good. And I just, yeah, I mean, I would hate and I would get a lot of, stick from my mates back home if I ever did change, which is maybe part of it too. But um, I would want them to do that because I'd I'd never want to, yeah, I'm, I'm always me and, yeah, I don't know. Talking about your mates back home, your caddy, Matt Kelly, he's a warnable boy, isn't he? He is, yes. So you, you've been together right from the start. Tell me about the relationship between a golfer and a caddy because the only reason I ask this, Lise, from my um, limited experience working on golf where I've had the pleasure of being the guy out on the course following the golfers. And you hear what they talk about with their caddies. I have never heard a golfer yet admit that the mistake on the golf course was theirs. It always seems to be <laughs> someone in the crowd or the caddy giving them the wrong club or – and I guess that is because you need belief, like boxers standing up there and saying, well, I'm going to knock him out because you have to have that belief. How does a relationship between you and your caddy work? And do you ever accept blame for mistakes on the course? Yeah, I think um, the good thing with me and Maddie is we are friends before we were – partnership um and I've always said to him I want like I'm I'm paying you for your opinion um and your opinion's your opinion it's not right or wrong it's just your opinion and I would never want you to say yes to something that you thought was the answer was no just because you wanted to agree with me so I, I always want him to give his honest opinion um yeah we you know we have our moments we've never had a big argument. We probably had our first big argument. Not wasn't even a big argument. It was over in half a hole, but last at the end of last year. Um, so, and I think the, the player caddy relationship. I think that the most important part of it is not the numbers or the clubs. It's the the, the talking in between shots, like you said, to get your mind off golf. Because we have a lot of time to think as golfers, um, 
and you want to be able to switch on and switch off so you don't burn all your energy. Uh, I, 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 I see that a lot um, of guys who, who exhaust them, like tire themselves out before Sunday sometimes. Um, you have to be still fresh Sunday afternoon and I think your caddy with conversation between shots is a big part of that. Um, and knowing when to talk and, and when not to talk. Sometimes you don't need to say anything. Um, and sometimes you've got to hear something that maybe you don't want to hear, but he's, he's really good at that. So, um, so what does yeah, he say a, to you? An important relationship. What, what does he say to you when you've obviously made a mistake? Is he a, is he a counselor to you then? Is he a psychologist or you have a relationship where you both know that in that particular instance, you've made a mistake and you both just shut up? Yeah, it's, there's been a few instances where I've, I've done something that he didn't really want me to do, like whether there's a gap in the trees. I'm very good at finding gaps in trees. Um, <laughs> maybe too good sometimes because um, I'll, I'll look for very small gaps and I've gone for a few gaps and hit timber. And <laughs> hit timber. In that case, and hit timber. It, and in that case, he doesn't have to say anything. But there's, you know, sometimes it's not like I'm getting into him or he's getting into me. It's just we're discussing, all right, well, I hit that club because I thought the wind was here or the the air was heavy or the lie was funny or the whatever it might be. So it's always um, it's always constructive criticism or, um, you know, the conversation is to benefit one of us, yeah. All right, quick ones to finish. Uh, you can play one golf course on the planet. It is? Uh, St. Andrews. St. Andrews. You can win one golf tournament on the planet. What is it? Masters. You can play with one person on the planet. Who is it? My dad. That's a good answer. When you finish being a professional golfer, you will. (laughs) Be a uh, quality control tester at uh, at Leishman Lager. <laughs> <laughs> Being a dad means to you uh, everything. Yeah, it's nothing. No bigger responsibility. Representing Australia on the world stage is an honour. Yeah, makes me proud. And a final question that isn't a one-worder, but it's probably the hardest question I ask you, but as a father, you'll probably put more time into it than you need to. But for all the kids out there, mate, that growing up wanting to achieve something in life, whether it be a golfer or a doctor or a brickie or a cricketer, what's a piece of advice you would give to those youngsters that we are lucky enough to listen to this show, mate, that are, that are trying to chase their dreams as you have? Well, I always think it's easier to do something well if you enjoy it and you have a passion for it. Um, whether that's golf, whether that's a doctor, an architect, or whatever it is, um, know that nothing's going to be handed to you. You've got to work for everything you get. Don't expect anything to be handed to you. Um, so the harder you work, the better you get and the luckier you get. So just work hard. Um, put yourself in the right position and be nice. <laughs> You'll get. I think that gets a, that gets a long way. Treat other people as you want them to treat you, and I think that'll. That's all. You, that's probably the biggest thing. I can see you via the Zoom, and there's a Richmond jumper in the background. There, one more of those quick questions. 
Um, <laughs> your favourite player from Richmond of all time is? Oh, Matthew Richardson. Oh, won't you be happy to hear that, the big Richo? <laughs> Jack Rewalt and Richo, I'd say. <laughs> hey, mate, um, you've been very, very generous with your time. We had a couple of technical hitches earlier on. Um, I really appreciate you taking us into the world of the PGA Tour and talking about some really, really personal stuff as well. It's a fantastic episode of the show. Um, stay safe, mate, Thanks, back mate. there in the States. Yeah, you too, Howie. Thanks, mate. Good chatting. As I alluded to in the intro, for a man that has achieved so much on the course, Mark is such a low, low-key type of operator. Thanks to Leash for coming on and for being prepared to talk about what him and Audrey went through in a really, really dark time that is now, thankfully, behind them both. Jeez, I would love to see that man win a major. Thanks also to Das, who, it must be said, is still a little bit shook up after his cats got rolled in the granny. They made it through, though, which is still a tremendous effort. And thanks most importantly to all of you out there for listening. Be great. Be great if you could do me a favour and give the pod a plug to someone close to you so we get more people listening. Get them on board. Alrighty, until next time with the voice of football, Martin Tyler. Peace and love. And we can do it if we try, try, try. If we try, try, try. If we try, try, try. Listener.